the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, we do want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash m-u-h-h consider dropping us a buck a month there or if not uh maybe leave us a nice review on itunes we'd appreciate whatever you can do to help out today taylor and i will be having a look at deleuze's monograph on on kant titled kant's critical philosophy the doctrine of the faculties here we are yeah it's the frenemy time (laughs) it's it's interesting man you know i told you that the French edition, which was published in 63. It's his third book, third book that he fully published and didn't just, you know, co-edit. Um, because for the Hume and Nietzsche books, he co-edited, he had like an edited little kind of essay, introductory essay for each of those with, with some excerpts that were being translated. Those aren't really considered a part of his work, but at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, what we have now, it's called Eminence of Life or Pure Eminence of Life. I forget the title of it in English. That finally saw translated his his little piece on Hume and his little piece on Nietzsche. That comes together, some of the earliest stuff that he published besides the, the Sartre stuff in the 40s, which is interesting material, but stuff that he himself kind of disowned. That doesn't come in English until like, late. But in any case, besides those two little collections, you know, he's got Empiricism and Subjectivity, the the book that we just kind of talked about um, last week. That's the Hume book. And then he has Nietzsche and Philosophy, which I think is 61, maybe 62. I have to look again. So this is the third book, the book on Kant, 63. And so it's kind of interesting to place it there because he does talk about like Kant's the was one of the the enemies that he he points out right like hegel kant you know some of the are the two main ones that he considers enemies and you know in this book he doesn't really obviously take a polemical tone there may be more of a polemical tone in for example Nietzschean philosophy but that polemic is really where he begins his uh that's the polemic he begins against hegel and it kind of if not dominates the book, it's a refrain, kind of puts Nietzsche forward as anti-Hegelian, anti-dialectical, etc. But in this book, we don't really see a polemic. You know, it's, it, right. it is a, I'm not sure how original the take is in terms of scholarship, but I do think that it's original, at least in the way that it's emphasizing something that's going to come back transformed in various ways, especially in deficit repetition and logic sense, which as the subtitle pointed out, the doctrine of the faculties, it's gonna be this refrain about the free and indeterminate discordant accord of the faculties. That's gonna be something that yeah. is I a mean, big is a big the claim. logic of sense or sensation. 
in a general way, right? I mean, yeah, you, you, if you Not wanted to, to trace those, those be terms, too much of a smart ass, but you back know. to Kant, that's that's possible. Um, I mean, it I makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's about you know, because he in this book says that Kant is kind of the first phenomenologist. Mm -hmm. Kant's at least the first critique is so focused on what we can know relative to mm -hmm. yeah. things in themselves, perception, etc. So, I mean, to me, it makes sense, but obviously, I don't have the uh, experience with logic of sense but at a at a kind of like general level it sounds like the logic of sense the makes, logic of if sense that makes sense <laughs> definitely is a critique against against kant also a, a critique even a critique against sartre although he'll use sartre as a critique of husserl although he'll use husserl <laughs> because it's trying to reorient us in a way to think beginning from pre-individual singularities and and milieus in order to constitute a transcendental field Instead yeah. of starting from, you know, a subject. I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit in the Hume episode. And that this was is just to reiterate, that would be the Kantian reversal. You don't start with the subject as a transcendental given, even if it's yeah. a transcendental subject, not an empirical subject. You, the subject is constituted in the given, as we said in the Hume episode. That comes back, that, that rhetoric in the Hume book comes back in the logic of sense, but, you know, transformed through these series. In the Kant book, you know, there's not really a polemic against Kant. He doesn't really say a, a bad word about him. It is a kind of, in that sense, it's a rigorous work of scholarship. I think like his monographs tend to be, but there's something original in it. And, yeah. you know, if we think about a lot of his books as, as he's called them, you know, buggery, right? I think that's the thing Deleuze likes to think about his history of philosophy, workmanship, at, at least in certain stages, there's going to be an aspect of buggery, right? Where you're giving birth to this so-called bastard child, but one which the author that he that's under consideration wouldn't be able to disown so mm -hmm. easily. I think in the case of Kant, it's a little more subtle. I think in the case of Kant, it would be emphasizing the extent to which the free and indeterminate accord of the faculties makes possible and grounds the legislative determinative usage of the faculties in the other two critiques, right? So this is why I think for him, the third critique overturns the system. It's kind of the faculty of desire that will provide the free and indeterminate accord of the faculties as an image of what the faculties can do that actually makes possible. I mean, this was the most polemical thing I saw in the book. And it was kind of towards the end, maybe in chapter three or so, where he says that, that it founds and makes possible the determinative usages where understanding is legislating in pure reason. Reason is legislating the critique of practical reason, but it's the faculty of desire, which is not necessarily legislating, right? It's, there's actually a freedom and it's that Correct, yeah. it's that freedom that I think is is even if it's in Kant uh, himself stating it, I think Deleuze takes that and runs with it. Um, yeah, no, I agree because I think it seems. I mean, Del I think Deleuze even says this that Kant is he sort of still tries to like sneak in the transcendent subject in the back door a little bit, even as much as he is working to like yeah eliminate that 
this gets played out in, as you said, as you said, the logic of sense with the subject, but also uh, in different repetition, the polemic is against the ideas because the ideas are both transcendent and imminent, at least how Deleuze reads them in Kant. And I think Kant would, would somewhat uh, agree with that because they transcend experience, they can't appear in experience, but they are regularly kind of postulated as supposed internally necessary for the inner workings of experience. And I think that Deleuze will take this as we might one day to jump into different repetition at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's more about he'll work this out in the logic of the virtual and the actual, whereby he has this whole polemic against the possible, which he takes from Bergson, um, more or less, you know, and he, he wants to bring up, as we talked about with Dan Smith and others, and Gil Morahon, you know, he wants to bring Maimon against Kant, right? Because it's no longer about the conditions of possible experience, yada, yada, yada. So this is other stuff to look forward to in the later works, but this is still a relatively young Deleuze, you know, cons- right. all things considered. And I was going to say, you know, if this book is first published in French in 63 and it does come out in English, it's one of the earlier books to come out in Deleuze's work, right? It comes out in 83, I think, in English, which is still relatively early for some of these translations. In the English, we get this preface, which is kind of a rehandling, a reworking and an extension of some of the courses he gave at Vincennes in 78 some of which were preserved. I think we have four lectures that I shared with you that have been translated. I'm not sure if just there, were no, uh, there weren't other tapes. I doubt that he would only have four lectures in a, in a course on Kant. You know, you'd right. think normally he'd have, you'd think around 10 to a dozen for a course um, for a three month thing. But what we do have, we get reworked and rehandled as the preface to the English translation, which is the four poetic formulas that would sum up the the Kantian philosophy. And um, this is one that I, I know that you really loved how how it's and I think it's a good way to begin. I think it's I think it adds to the fact that first of all, the comp book is one of the shortest he's he's written, right? It's it's very it's very dense, it's very it's very melted down um, in yeah, the English bursting with concepts. I mean I feel like yeah. we could take three episodes or more on just this book, you know, just because there's so much jam packed in because we've yeah. got we've got so much about the imagination and the faculties. Mm-hmm. We've got the whole discussion of time, syntheses of time, etc. We've got a little bit of the sort of what like the uh the little zygotes of uh of desire and kind of that whole mm-hmm. thing get expressed here. And I feel like I'm even leaving out, you know, we get some more discussion of I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this book. Yeah, what I was going to say is it's interesting, right? I mean, like the stuff he covers in his, especially in that first lecture, that first seminar I sent you, it's called, I think the course, the little four course seminars is just called Synthesis and Time. He really goes into the a priori. He goes into space and time, yada, yada. And in the four poetic formulas that start the English translation, you know, it starts with time is at a joint. It kept it catches you. It's a good hook for the reader, but it's a little misleading in terms of what the rest of the book will will be about, right? Because he will not go into so much this question of the unhingedness of temporality of time. And so maybe one thing I would just suggest 
I mean, we could either say a little bit about it because I know it captured your imagination and you might want to say something about it. But I do think this will give us a chance next week when we have Espen Hammer on to talk maybe about this formula and talk about time and temporality in Kant. That'll be something we spend a whole episode on. It's not just Kant. It'll be Kant and beyond up mm-hmm. to Heidegger and Adorno. Right. Critical theory, um, I think, at large. Criti- uh, up to critical theory. I do think that that's one thing that's that I would say is disappointing that, you know, he, he didn't, for the English translation, for example, maybe have an expanded appendix or something on time because he covers it in that seminar that yeah, we have. Right. You know, yeah. so I read a I lot guess, of the I read a good 25 or mm-hmm. so, maybe 30 pages. I did pull some of that material. I played I, a lot I, of the time stuff. <laughs> I, I assumed you'd enjoy it because he he does play off uh, Kant against Leibniz and back again. Yeah, yes. like, like there's some good dialogue. Yeah, I mean, that that that's one of the things that I really love in that first yeah. seminar is you know Kant's talking about synthetic a priori and and Leibniz is like, well, if you if you extend it hard enough, it's actually analytic. If if we could go far enough, if you take if you take the infinitesimal right, that if you go mm-hmm. far enough, you can see that the the synthetic is not is not there right and uh, so him him making that that discussion and being able to speak back for Leibniz but also letting Kant have the final say as though there were this interesting dialogue going on and I know he does he doesn't he says philosophy is not dialogue but it's but he's putting he's bringing out what Leibniz could have said back and it's not dialogue in the normal sense it's focus solely on problems, which mm-hmm. I think is, is the exception, right? I mean, you know, and what is philosophy when he's like, philosophy is not communication, not dialogue. What he really means is it's not necessarily about coming to a consensus about what terms mean. It yeah. is a fundamental confrontation of problems. And um, I think for Leibniz, as Deleuze makes clear, there's a whole problematic that his system stands or falls with allowing Kant this the synthetic a priori for example i mean we talked about this with gill you know the pythagorean theorem is that an analytic judgment that's contained in the concept of triangle or is it in, or is it a synthetic a priori judgment as kant wants to make you know and because you don't you can't make another triangle inverted and you know, you can't extend the triangle one way and, and make a square and then and then make another triangle, blah, blah, blah. You can't do these things in experience. You don't do them, right? Mm-hmm. It's, but it's not given the triangle itself doesn't come contained in it. And yet it's like essential to the concept. But Leibniz was to say, no, you got to go further. This is just to tell the audience. I know the Patu seminars are, are probably still down, but you can easily find uh, yeah, we can probably link those in the show we notes can, we for should everyone too. Def- definitely link to uh, Kant Synthesis of Time. It's four seminars. Really good read. Really quick yeah, read. I think some of it even kind of reads better than material. the book. Yes, it does. Given the fact that you know, as long as one allows when reading those seminars, that it's it allows for it to be a conversational thing, right? There are some yeah. repetitions Student, and yeah. whatever. It is a lecture. But, Students um, ask questions, etc. Yeah. But yeah, so the first formula, the first poetic formula, time is out of joint, right? Shakespeare, Hamlet. Um, we talked about this a little bit. And if you want, we can spend a few minutes talking about it. But since it doesn't concern the rest of the book, you know, let's at least get it out of the way. And it's an interesting thing to apply to Kant. You know, you might think of him as having nothing to do with Shakespeare. So there is something provocative 
with beginning with this. Hamlet's my favorite play from Shakespeare. I do want to read just the pair of lines that this actually comes from, from Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5. The time is out of joint, O curse spite, that ever I was born to set it right. <laughs> so this yeah. is kind of like uh, interesting in the way that obviously one of the central conceits of the play Hamlet is his inability to act or his indecision about acting, and which I think goes to the whole discussion you just had about it's not about what it means, it's about what it does, right? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thinking on its own is not sufficient to to create effects in the world i suppose maybe would be perhaps a leap but one i think i'm willing to make or something like that no, no this is good because at the end of the book or towards the end of the book one of the refrains of the the unrestricted free indeterminate play of the faculties is the fact that if we start with the critique of pure reason in order to discover the speculative interests of reason in the faculty of knowledge, or as it's now translated, cognition, that doesn't give it a pride of place over the faculty of, over the critique of practical reason, whereby now it's, you know, it's the faculty of desire that kind of leads us, as it will in the critique of judgment, to consider the supersensible and to, you know, to consider the ends of reason, the practical ends of reason in whether it be sociability, history, but also the kind of divine moral law. And so in a certain sense, if the critique of pure reason is necessary, it's necessary, but still subordinate to, to morality, to moral law, to practical ends, right? It's not, should not be taken as, as just because the theoretical part comes first, that it's dominant. I think that that's something that Deleuze takes up and actually stays faithful to Kant in when he subverts the hierarchy of absolute knowledge for this process of learning. And I think that that's, that learning is applied knowledge, right? I mean, it's, it implies applicability. It's not just thinking in a vacuum. In any case, so yeah, time is out of joint. I mean, just really quickly, I, I kind of said this to you before, so I won't bore you with it. But before going on to that, I guess the Hamlet thing is interesting because there's something about time being out of joint where it's there's this guilt, not just about the murder of the father, but this play on whether Hamlet or not had murderous desires himself, right? To kill the father and take his place, to be his own father by marrying his mother, right? That would be... That's kind of the back to the future theme, right? Is is uh, giving birth to oneself. That's kind of a time is out of joint thing. Um, I mean, gosh, now that you bring this up, this is such an in interesting. I mean, he even brings up Oedipus a little bit here regarding something about the myth. I can't remember the line itself. I've got it. I'd have to dig through a mountain of quotes to find it, though. Well, there's the difference between Aeschylus and 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 Sophocles, right? The difference between the form of tragedy in, in Aeschylus and Sophocles that, you know, in Sophocles, the, the tragedy is not everything really comes full circle, but in any case, that's, that's the whole image that, that Deleuze is wanting to paint, you know, that time is out of joint. This is whereby Kant kind of affects a reversal in the history of thinking that stems at least as far back as Aristotle and Plato, if not further, where time is 
kind of subjected to what's called the great year or this classical image of eternal return where time is circular, right? It's based on the sort of rotation of the spheres um, and the cyclical nature of the seasons. And so it's measured by things externally, right? It is the measure of things and their rate of change or their movement. And for Deleuze, time is out of joint. It's unhinged from these cardinal points that make it circular. It becomes a straight line. It becomes sort of, it's no longer the measure of things outside of it, but sort of the, it becomes internal. It becomes inner sense, as Kant says, right? It becomes part of subjective lived experience or whatever you want to you say it. It's, it itself is the determinable form and not, sort of the determined or static form becomes rhythm and not meter as they'll say in a thousand plateaus will you indulge me and allow me to read this little section now this is going to be from the seminar and not the book because i just did a control f in the yeah, book and go oedipus, for it. oedipus is not mentioned once in the book but comes up on numerous times in the seminars the famous definition time is the number of movement with kant there is an indescribable novelty it's the first time that time is liberated, stretches itself, ceases to be a cosmological or psychological time, whether it's the world or soul makes no difference, to become a formal time, a pure deployed form, and this will be a phenomenon of extreme importance for modern thought. This is the first great Kantian reversal in the theory of time. So I take Hamlet's formula literally to apply it to Kant. The time is out of joint. It's with Kant from the point of view of the concept of time that we can effectively say that time is out of joint, which is to say has ceased to be subordinated to the measure of movement. And on the contrary, movement will be completely subordinated to it. And time will be this sort of form, which is also pure. And in this kind of act by which the world empties itself becomes a desert. This is why one of Kant's best disciples, it won't be a philosopher. We never find those who understand philosophers among philosophers is Holderlin. And Holderlin, who, drawing on Kant against the Kantians, understood by developing a theory of time, which is precisely the pure and empty form in which Oedipus wanders. This is good, and it makes sense that he doesn't have this in this book in 63, because the pure and empty form of time is going to be a theme in, um, in Difference of Repetition. And, um, and obviously mentioning the desert, that's the <laughs> desert to, to which Oedipus sets out and wandering oh interesting um, kind of like uh the preacher right yeah the preacher and, i mean kind of like blinds himself in a similar way yes. right i think that it's pretty clear frank herbert was, was yeah, drawing yeah. upon oedipus there yeah so especially with the time stuff yeah that, okay that's just an interesting con connection that popped into my head i thought it was interesting too that for deleuze to bring in holderlin just wanted to note that for what he, it's worth he brings them up every now and then but it's it's not a constant for him that's not one of his his main go-tos, but he will bring him up in a thousand plateaus, maybe in difference repetition. I'd have to check, but um, he doesn't often, you know, go to Shakespeare that much. That's um, true too. Yeah, he's more of a modern American Anglo-American literature <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah, he even has a in the dialogues book with Claire Parnay he talks about the superiority of Anglo-American literature. Which I assume would, would, would annoy some Francophones because obviously the French have a, if you want, a longer and more storied um, literary history 
Well, that's arguable, maybe. In the, in the case of, of Britain, you could argue about that to some extent. But still, it's kind of like uh, Foucault saying he prefers a Coke and a club soda or sorry, a Coke and a club sandwich over whatever famous French meal. You can obviously tell I'm not steeped in French <laughs> cuisine. Let's see. The second formula is well, just real quick. I mean, just just to draw from uh, onto Holderland. I mean, because this is not necessarily something that we like even have to go into that much. But I thought it was quite interesting that Deleuze sort of saw, particularly with the critique of judgment, Kant becoming the founder of romanticism. That's true. Which That's is, true. That's a good. I don't know. That's a very unexpected, uh, a very oblique kind of reference to throw at you. You know. Yeah, I'm not sure in German studies if that would be then or now an outrageous claim. You know, I mean, I think that to a certain extent, people would point back to what Storm and Drong, uh, people like Goethe and, and others sure, yeah. for literary. But I think, you know, he means kind of in the in the sense of, of giving it a philosophical grounding and a conceptual basis. I suppose that's not as radical, even if he does it like he spells it out in the seminars more like that. But in the yeah. book where he makes the passing reference, it does seem to be a kind of interesting polemical thing where he says something like what classicism and romanticism are, are balanced in this complex equilibrium in the critique of judgment. In the seminars, though, he talks about the critique of judgment as like aesthetics is finally given its like philosophical basis that's that sort of transcends being merely based in reflection on art. Yeah. Right. I was thinking about the chronology, not to even pun on the whole time aspect of this, but the sort of chronology of Kant's lifetime or, you know, et cetera, would sort of kind of correspond more or less sort of with, I guess, British romanticism in terms of periodization. Blake was probably late like late 17th century so what i mean like late 18th late 18th century so 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 coinciding with with kant yeah he's publishing in the in the 1700s in the late 1700s then you have you know obviously keats shelley byron all those guys are more first you have early 19th yeah first you have um, the first generation you have wordsworth and coleridge right and they're going to coincide kind of with Kant's death, that'll be their rise. So, I mean, in terms of periodization, you could you could correlate some of that. Because sometimes Blake isn't even like, you know, they... Right, yeah. Sometimes he's... Kind he's of a li- liminal figure, let's say. Sometimes he's left out. I think he deserves to be in. It all depends. And Blake, like Kant, was, was influenced by Swedenborg, the crazy mystic. They were both influenced by Swedenborg. So there's a whole kind of incestuous... I couldn't imagine more discontinuity between Kant and and Blake. Blake. Although they seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I think songs of experience would be a little bit different if Kant wrote them. (laughs) But, um, okay, so the second formula is a disorder of all the senses. This is Rambeau. Again, as I mentioned to you, the other poetic formula he brings from I'm not doing them in order in, in the book, but the two formulas he has for Rambo is I as another, a disorder of all the senses. Again, these are more, at least the I as another is taken up more fully in the, the seminars. He kind of goes through it a lot. 
you know, and, and he doesn't really show up in this book. So I won't really say much about it, even though a lot has been, been talked about it. Deleuze wants to say that both of these formulas, Kant actually takes further than Rimbaud. The Rimbaud is still too Aristotelian or still too, I would say, Cartesian to a certain extent. Kant takes I as another much further, right? He rethinks the Cartesian cogito, where it is time that determines the I think. And again, as I said, the seminars cover this much more fully, so I won't say too much about it, but the, but a disorder of all the senses, at least we get that in this book, because it is, Deleuze will turn this into a formula for understanding the unregulated exercise of all the faculties, which you have highlighted here. And he says, this might be the fourth formula of a deeply romantic Kant in the Critique <laughs> of Judgment. So yeah, I mean, that's something that we can talk about as we get into it. It is interesting that Deleuze fixates on the critique of judgment as opposed to the other two it's counterintuitive but i think deleuze perhaps likes to take the road less traveled with these things granted i've not read the critique of judgment yeah deleuze makes it seem like there's something unresolved with the first two critiques right now he'll want to say that the dynamic that's unresolved is the accord of the faculties and how it is that one faculty, whether it be understanding the critique of pure reason or, or reason in the critique of practical reason, how one of them can dominate and legislate over the others, that that interplay and inner working of the faculties can be, can be left in abeyance and not dealt with as a problem. And so I think that's kind of how his take on it is. You know, I see it more conservatively as Kant kind of giving some teeth to the way in which we are called as moral beings to this moral law, what draws us in. And it's easy that one could kind of look out into nature and, and be sort of see a creative designer, if you will. And I think Kant wants to, wants to scaffold that idea and give it some, some teeth in the transcendental system. And so in that sense, he's, he's kind of pointing back to, even if we can't speculatively, objectively prove or even convincingly prove the existence of God, we sort of have to postulate or take it as a working hypothesis even. I know that's not his language, but we'd have to take it as this working hypothesis that there is this moral creator, this moral author of, of the universe. Otherwise... Well, I think for, for Kant, otherwise there is a way in which duty and this moral calling to a higher sociability might be threatened, let's say. Right, so we see in the teleological ends of nature, in beauty, in the sublime, which is stuff we can talk about at some, at some point in the conversation, where you're kind of, you know, drawn to deal with these questions of ends. And I think Kant wants to try to wrap that into his system. But Deleuze is more interested in this inner working of the faculties, right? I mean, which underpins a lot of this discussion. And I think that that's where, that's the part of it he's going to take and run with and develop these, I don't want to call them concepts, but they're almost like slogans, if you will, that dot, that are refrains. Refrains is a better way of saying it throughout different repetition, like uh, crowned anarchy. I mean, when he talks about crowned anarchy, he's talking about this discordant accord of the faculties 
some of the statements about the law, I was like, uh, I don't, this sounds off-putting to me. It's something interesting, right? I mean, with, with Kant, you know, this notion of when we desire, when we act, we should make of our will to act in our desire, we should make it like this universal maxim mm-hmm. whereby if everyone acted desire this way, what would be the consequences? Sartre says it somewhere, and I can never find this quote, and so I almost feel like I'm misattributing it to him. But he says something similar, but the way I remember it with Sartre, because of his focus on the gaze, I am a subject, and I become an object when the other like gazes at me, blah, blah, blah. Of course, Deleuze will say this doesn't go far enough, but mm-hmm. the important thing being it's in the gaze that... You know, that's why there's no, there's no mirrors in hell, right? And no exit. Hell is other people. We're constantly objectified by being looked at. In any case, Sar says something like, you know, when I act, I should act as though the eyes of the world, everyone's eyes are on me. That's, that's almost That goes brilliant, to judgment, right? That's almost, well, judgment in a different sense than what Kant means, but yes, it goes to a certain time, but it almost takes it to, it takes the Kantian categorical imperative to its fever pitch of, of paranoia. What could be more paranoia, paranoia and more paralyzing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's paranoiac, it's paralyzing. And if one can manage to act through the paralysis, yeah, I mean, that's like the, that's like the fever pitch of, of paranoia. So... Deleuze says it in passing, but it does beg the question, theoretically, if, for example, one were to lie, if lying were made a maxim of universal, a universal law of the will, then how could promises be made? Then how could social interactions Or why happen? would promises be necessary? That's exactly true. That, that becomes the problem. And, you know, obviously... People empirically lie, but to make it a moral law is where the contradiction comes into play, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I think people like Freud and Lacan would, would play with this, right? Because the, the first thing we do is we lie to ourselves, right? Partly because we can't tell the whole truth. We can't speak the whole truth, but partly because that's just, we lie to ourselves unconsciously, right? I mean, not just in ways of pretending, but in just primary oppression just castration yeah. into well, the, even the into language that, blah 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 even the way that we talked last episode relative to sort of i guess the powers of the false or you know sort yeah of right glossing over the gaps but yeah i mean that's exactly right i mean for nietzsche the truth doesn't always do justice or serve to propel life and improve life he's questioning right. about why why it is we desire truth, what is hidden beneath that desire, if it's not itself its own form of of lying and egotism when it proclaims to be for the good of all. We're being a little bit more polemical against Kant than Deleuze is, right? Because in this yeah. in this book he's very much pretty stoic. Even in the seminar uh, that, that we talked about with like playing Leibniz off against Kant, that's even an interesting way of at least throwing in some objections. But Deleuze isn't really interested in doing that in this book. And that may dissatisfy, I think, some readers who would like to see more Deleuze in 
in the work with some pushback or something like this, but I think you don't necessarily need caveats. I think what Deleuze is trying to do working through these, this material is itself interesting enough and gives some degree of indication to the developments that the work of Kant's going to take on for, for Deleuze's future work. You were mentioning earlier, like these kind of quasi concepts that get developed is something like the imagination as a schema operating a schematizing function. Is that something along those lines that you were thinking of or talking about? I don't know if that's a quasi concept, but that's something that I think Deleuze highlights. If it's something that Kant kind of, you know, sets up first in the critique of pure reason, right? Where the, the imagination is, is the activity of synthesis. The understanding is the activity of unifying within the synthesis reasons, the activity of, of totalizing within the synthesis. For Deleuze, the understanding is trying to unify through its conceptualizations, but the imagination is the one that is applying schematism in order to have those concepts and those spatio-temporal determinations coincide, right? Like the imagination is the one that applies the schematism, even if the understanding is the one that like unifies the two is, is what I should say. I think Deleuze is trying to emphasize the role of the imagination in order to show that even if it doesn't dominate the other two faculties, the other two main faculties, right? Understanding and reason in the, in the critique of judgment or in aesthetic common sense, right? In their, in their accord, that's a good thing. I think for Deleuze, that is something that's productive. That's a good thing that it's not just another example of one faculty dominating the others under one of reason's interests. It's the fact that, in fact, there is no domination of the imagination over the others that gives the critique of judgment for Deleuze this interesting tenor, whereby this is actually, this actually points to an ungrounded and unregulated an initial dissension, a discord that's initial in the faculties. And there is a genesis, a generativity of an accord after the fact. This is most interesting relative to desire, although I couldn't articulate perhaps why that is, but I think that I'm my intuition is correct here. That aspect of the sort of latter, perhaps quarter of the book was maybe the most interesting but mm -hmm. I, the rest of it i didn't find like the faculty discussion i don't know i just that stuff kind of lost me that's where i get uninterested to be honest and that's fair and i feel like that's that that requires a, a certain fluency if you will a certain familiarity a certain even experience of use with kantian conceptual aggregates. As Deleuze says in um, the seminars, but also in the Abbasidaire, Kant is like this monstrous creator of concepts. Once you kind of dissipate some of the, the fog of the, the Kernigsbergian fog that seems to surround the system, like there's a frightening development of concepts. And that's one of the things that, that Deleuze kind of admires about him. But that can be overwhelming. So you, you get bogged down into a whole menagerie a whole dictionary of terms right yeah that almost can seem arbitrary 
right? Yeah. I mean, this is what we talked about last week with Hume, where I was saying, you know, for Hume, reason is not a faculty, right? It's this instinct, habit, etc. And so it can be nailed down a little bit easier. But with Kant, you need to have a whole reason is is one of the big cogs in the machine. And so it's sometimes it, it can take on the role of determining the machine. Sometimes it's functioning along with it and gives the work to the understanding, like the pure reason. Sometimes the imagination takes the front, even if it's not determining, but you know, you, you kind of need to see the whole machine working. And so I can understand why you'd be put off by that. But I guess I would say with, in terms of desire, in terms of the faculty of desire, you know, what, what Deleuze shows in the early part of the book is that the higher, when, the faculty of desire finds its higher end within itself, it becomes what? The faculty of the will, which is the faculty of the moral law, the categorical imperative. It's what, what we were just talking about. And I think that if, if as you have here in your notes, anti-Oedipus is, as we've talked about with some of our interlocutors, if anti-Oedipus is known or thought, should be thought of as this fourth critique, perhaps the critique of you know, of pure desire or critique <laughs> of desiring machines or whatever you want to call it. I think that would be a way in which desire is now no longer conceived of, because if you remember for Kant, desire yeah, he kind of, is... He does a deterritorialization of desire in a... Yes. Some, yeah, desire uh, for Kant is sort of the faculty for representing... The faculty of desire is the faculty which, by virtue of its representations, becomes the cause of the reality of the objects of these representations. The faculty of desires has representations that's associated with it, and through those representations, it becomes the cause of the reality of the objects of those representations. And what Deleuze points out, or Deleuze and Guattari point out in Anti-Oedipus, is basically this is weird circumlocutious way of defining the faculty of desire if it has a benefit over let's say platonic classical views of desire which sees it as a lack as a product of a lack there's finally desire becomes productive but in as far as it becomes productive it is still or immediately psychological it's still or immediately fantastical it's imaginary right in in a loose sense as opposed it, to desiring machines which are real well, exactly exactly right so the striving itself is the object of for example the whether it be the sexual lust right it's it itself through my representations of i don't know sexual conquest or whatever creates the the object of my lust right yeah and, yeah yeah and, and i think that that's why in my reading of anti-oedipus if I, i've always tried to remind myself that like desire in the sense in which they're trying to give it a productive reality that's not just a mere product of fantasy should be distinguished from what we commonly think of as desires i have yeah. my my desires and you have yours and whatever. I, I think that we have to be very clear about that. Otherwise, we fall back into a kind of psychological, a purely psychological realm. And if we start from there, then I think we, we kind of ruin the notion of the, the libido, for example, right? What I'm reading from Deleuze is that he's saying that Kant 
in the discussion of the faculties and them being active, you can see the difference between active faculties actively constructing machining, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. versus I think a lack in, implies a passivity that implies a receipt of a something, a transcendental from like an exteriority, right? And not an interior genesis mm -hmm. or what, yeah, what yeah, have yeah. you, right? See, you know what I mean? Like I saying, that yeah. lack would be a transcendent that yeah. is imposed on us versus this notion of desire is saying, no, this is the faculties. I mean, this is where it almost goes to Hume. Like this is where like, it's almost this quasi instinctual drive sort of thing mm -hmm. for the faculties to generate or produce the reality that we experience phenomenological blah, blah, blah. You could probably articulate that better. I feel like my intuition is fairly correct here. Right. At least for desire that, that's the productive one, even if the other faculties are uh, are active, as opposed to what is passive for the transcendental subject or for the subject in general, the subject equals X, which would be the receptivity of the receptive and spontaneous faculty of intuition, which is a weird, I, I always find it weird that Kant's intuition is so, again, radically as a concept distinct from what we commonly think of as intuition which is almost this gut feeling, right? Whereas intuition is our sensation of phenomena, right? Yeah. That is passive. Our, you know, like, in a sense that way, you could think of it as against our will, right? Those, those sensations. I, who was it that brought up Augustine? There's a great line from the Confessions where, you know, his friends are trying to drag him along to the, to the, to the arena to the Colosseum or whatever to, to see, Possibly to, see a, to see, well, to see, I'm yeah, kidding. <laughs> to see, to see some gladiators slaughter each other. And he resists and resists and they, they insist and he goes along with them. And as the bloodshed starts, he, he puts his hands over his eyes, right? Because he doesn't want to see this supposedly sinful display, but in doing so, he is overwhelmed by the roar of the crowd around him, right? And it forces him to lower his hands and to take in this spectacle for which, yeah. you know, he's like confessing. Lot's wife looking back and turning into a pillar of salt almost. Yeah, I mean, it's something like that, but it just kind of shows that, and this is again why in the diagram of the unconscious that, that Freud makes, at least in certain of them at a certain date, you have, you know, if the unconscious is almost like this, it's almost like this open bag and it's got this top, it's got the stopper on it where the acoustic comes in, right? The, mm -hmm. the acoustic images of, of words and sounds and things. So in any case, that's part of the recept, that's part of the passivity of, of the subject and the other faculties then would be, would be active, but it's specifically desire would be the productive aspect. And Deleuze and Guattari give credit to Kant for that in this ironic way i think maybe it's ironic but but it's also interesting to again reiterate how fundamental the kantian project is that even in something like anti oedipus you're going to have someone like kant and it's and it's important but they say it's it's made productive but it's it's always already it's immediately psychologistic imaginary and merely the domain of, of fantasies of once right it's my desires, my the things I want. And I, I think that that's the lowest form of what they mean by desire. You know, even in this book, he 
kind of brings up a couple of like he discusses the illegitimate and the legitimate uses yeah yeah i mean instead of the syntheses it's the legitimate and illegitimate uses of reason because reason wants to uh, instead of being the ideas instead of the ideas being regulative like for example god world soul or self reason wants to overstep that boundary and be constitutive so what happens when god is no longer a regulative principle for let's say, like in Leibniz, the possible continuity, the compossibility of series, right? God is the principle for the compossibility of series and, and uh, makes the, the best of all possible worlds converge, right, in those series. If God is constitutive in the sense in which Kant thinks of it, then cause and effect, causality, would no longer be a sort of transcendental determination based on the logic of appearing, but would be, God would sort of be in the thing in itself, right? There would be an occasionalism like Malbranche where like we have phenomena, we can't know the thing in itself, but we, we can think it because we need to be able to think it in order to think of our super sensible moral law that's going to impel us to, to sort of bring the good into the world. But if we thought of God in hearing and the thing in itself and, 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 and pretended to know that then all kinds of fanciful superstitions would arise from that. Right. So that's a transcendent illegitimate use of reason is to think of the ideas as constitutive rather than regulative. I mean, you can think of the understanding could do something similar where it thinks it can know things in themselves or, you know what I mean? Thinks it can go beyond appearing and the phenomenal realm to know the thing in itself, which would violate the kind of Humean skeptical challenge to dogmatic metaphysics. And that's what Kant said before the critiques, before the critical period, that he had kind of had this dogmatic slumber, right? That he thought of bodies as external entities that had subsistence. And it's stuff we fall into every day. We do fall into these kind of ways of talking about cause and effect that, that Hume warned us about. And, and I think that it's, it's to a certain extent, you know, when we interact in our day-to-day everyday lives, yeah, we're not necessarily philosophically solving these problems. And so it's okay to bring in some of those transcendent illegitimate uses, yeah. uses, but, um, but then they can also going unchallenged when we start to reflect and contemplate and we base our series of extrapolations on the that type of thinking that's when we get led into all kinds of well as you one of your favorite people might call it we we build all of these spooks these bits bats in the belfry right if we don't sort of challenge the the grounds upon which we we begin to radiosinate which is a good word. I don't get to use it. <laughs> I was about to ask. That's a new one on me. So yeah, that's just kind of a. <laughs> I, it, it it may even be just kind of um informal English, but radiosinate is like to to disquisition rationally, right? You know, you're you're just sort of following, almost like you can think of like following syllogisms, right? You're just you're just following a series of of reasonings. Now, one thing that this made me think about. And this involves truth as well, would be even though cause and effect, to me, my understanding is 
that it's not necessarily that there is no cause and effect, but that we can't assume the relation between two objects, right? Like we can't ever, that's, we can assume it for our practical purposes. For example, something like Newton's physics, right? The classical physical model was fine, right? Like we'd use, if the model was false, not so much false, but it wasn't entirely accurate, let's say. So it could be used. It had utility. It could be used. And so it had a sort of truth, right? Because it could be successfully used to operate and solve problems, right? But so for, it's not yeah. uh, this transcendent truth. It's like an actual quasi-empirical truth. You're talking about like for every action, there is a. Well, just like you know. the classical model of physics, right? Like it, you know, we get quantum physics down the road whenever we encounter problems that the classical model of physics can't solve. Yeah. I mean, um, so it's about practical. It's kind of, I, I, and I'm going to say this, but this, I'm not necessarily going to use Kant's definition, but like a practical reason, truth and utility being co-constitutive i suppose or like if there's a truth that's not that doesn't have utility what is that you know although that gets a little jordan petersony right because he's to him his thing is okay sure there might you might have a point a truth about something but the only truths almost in a spinoza's way believe it or not would be like what actually is useful and practical in the world that should be is what should be considered a truth Things that have utility in in the world, rather than a transcendent truth. Because what good is a transcendent truth if it has no utility? Because uh, I think Deleuze is sort of on that same track or train of thought. Sounds like it all depends on sort of the the angle we're talking from. But you know, obviously, there's a sense in which, again, it depends on what we mean by truth here. Obviously, but I think that in terms of practical application applicability or utility from truth that becomes a little bit dangerous i would just mm -hmm. say um knowing or the way in which we orient our knowledge orient our sort of system of knowledge with respect to truth you know that should in the end be concerned with practical utility whether or not what we conceive as truth or what we approach to knowing as truth. And again, I think this is why Deleuze doesn't really have much use for it because it's not, it's like truth like being is kind of this empty concept. Yeah, yeah. If I it mean, even is one. I mean, so, that kind of dovetails I think, in with what I'm saying too, I think. All the right. Time. And I guess I would just say that that's where, to talk about its utility, I mean, Nietzsche's critique of truth is that, <laughs> that often and most often truth is useless. And I think it's almost like at that point where there's something more interesting about it, because it's precisely those who try to wield truth as a weapon in order to conserve a certain orthodox image of society or something yeah, like this. Exactly. That's, those are the ones that you got to watch out for. Like so, gender is this. Or God as the truth and the way. And of course, I mean, my God, our God, the one you're supposed to follow, this one you're supposed to act in accordance with this set of rules, right? You, you can you can extrapolate from that. And I think that that's, that's where truth having utility is with a capital T, obviously. And then there's mm -hmm. pragmatists who want to talk about truths with a smaller case T. 
and you can get into all of this kind of semantics. But, you know, I mean, even Kant doesn't really talk about about truth that much, right? You know, he's he himself is almost a little bit more practical than than that kind of classical discourse. You know, he's, well, I feel like the ethics of like Kantian ethics kind of well, he'll talk about the moral law, oh, for sure, and the categorical imperative, and and you know, this sort of uh, willing, you know, making your maxim into of the will into this universal. Sure, yeah, I mean, but. It seems in that sense, you know, truth would be something constructive than and constructed rather than than given. I guess that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That that I mean that makes wary, sense. We should be wary of, of those who claim that truth is is a sort of given. Right. Yeah. Um that at least is my maybe skeptical position. No, I think that that makes sense. Or cynical, depending on whether we're talking about knowledge. <laughs> See that I mean that's that's almost how I even think of even if obviously the cynics and the, and the skeptics had their own schools and their own kind of uh, even like affect if you will associated with them and and obviously left led to and then the terms get taken up but like you know for me cynical and skeptical I can be one or the other with regards to truth just depends on if we're talking about practical things or if we're talking about more speculative things and I think that that's Partly what the transcendental attitude is is meant to um, incorporate is those skeptical and um, cynical moments, but filter them through this system that has a structure that has, mm -hmm. even if it's swarming with concepts like we talked about just a minute ago, it is meant to kind of be these rail guards for the application of cynicism and skepticism and find the real, where the real, um, bad shit comes in which is you know for kant it might be limited to, to transcendental illusion that necessarily comes even if we border off the transcendent that the reason and rational beings still we can get into these habits of generating these um these illusions and i think for deleuze as what he'll call it it's really more false problems you know, opinion, cliche, what he calls stupidity, batisse, right? Which is this, to a certain extent, it's, you know, it's it's believing that we're already thinking, that thinking is, is something we do every day and something we do at each moment. When in fact, when thinking doesn't take itself as a problem, that's when it already has a, a fun, nice, easy image of thought that it's working with. And that's when obviously there's a, there's a dominant status quo that is already assumed and, and presumed to be working functionally well. That kind of stupidity, I think, is another way of talking about the, the dominant image of thought. I mean, this passage is – this would go to the way that kind of Kant sort of frees up desire in a sense here. Let me go ahead and read through this. Mm -hmm. The faculty of desire presupposes a representation which determines the will. But this time, can it be sufficient to invoke the existence of a priori representations for the synthesis of the will and of the representation to be itself a priori? The problem here is really quite different. Even when a representation is a priori, it determines the will through the medium of a pleasure linked to the object which it represents. The synthesis thus remains empirical or a posteriori. The will is determined pathologically. 
the faculty of desire remains in a lower state. In order for the latter to attain its higher form, the representation must cease to be a representation of an object, even an a priori one. It must be the representation of a pure form. If all material of a law, i.e. every subject of the will considered as a ground of its determination, is abstracted from it, nothing remains except the mere form of giving universal law. The faculty of desire is thus a higher faculty, and the practical synthesis which corresponds to it is a priori when the will is no longer determined by pleasure, but by the simple form of law. Then the faculty of desire no longer finds its law outside itself in content or in an object, but in itself it is said to be autonomous. The pure form of what does it say? The mere form of giving universal law, right? So the the pure form of of law of giving law. This is the categorical imperative. Just stated differently. Interesting. I would you know, never have guessed that. <laughs> but yeah, I guess yeah, the, it kind of makes sense. This is the category. Yeah, this is the categorical imperative, but stated in such a way that you know, it's stated in a way that's not an imperative. It's a declarative statement, but you know, you can take that statement and then make it a make it an ought, as Kant will do. And it's the pure form of ought made large and universal. That's the categorical imperative. Obviously, this has all kinds of political implications that we don't necessarily need to go into here, but you can see that there was something you read in that that passage that made me think of I, I, I forgot exactly what I was going to bring up, but well, you know, it might he, be this is this an example of transcendental deduction here? Because whenever he says, like, if all material of a law, i.e., every every object of the will considered as a ground of its determination is abstracted from it, nothing remains except the mere form of giving universal law. So that to me kind of reads as though there's a sort of this ethical transcendental deduction that he arrives at to come up with the categorical comparative and that's what that little part of the passage is trying to say yeah i mean he, he does he does similar things with because i think this concept of transcendental deduction is one that i'm interested in discussing yeah with to some extent in terms of this move i won't call it specifically transcendental deduction because that's that's a very precise term that Kant wants to give okay, to gotcha. like transcendental deduction sure. of the categories, blah, 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 okay. blah, blah. But I will say this move of abstracting from all content and remaining with the form is what he does with space. It's what he does with time, right? Uh, it's space is just pure exteriority, right? It's just the time is pure inter interior. It's the pure empty form of time. And so I would suggest one thing that's interesting to me, and this is seen in um, Simon Dunn's lecture on perception in 64, where towards the end of the, of the lecture, he kind of, um, he works through how we don't experience space nor time in the way that Khan is talking about it. We don't experience these, they actually aren't these structures of, of sensibility. You can see how a lot of thinkers, even from his time onward, like Maimon and Cohen and others talked about, but you can also think about with relativity, we can think about different space times, right? We can think about different, 
inertial frames of reference. Without going into all of that, since I know neither of us are experts in that, the interesting thing for me, at least from a Simondonian perspective, is Kant will always kind of do this move where when something's under consideration, if we want to make it pure, universal, objectively valid, and therefore transcendental, we have to get rid of the content and keep the form. And I think that even if he makes this huge leap forward from classical philosophy, that is still a prejudice of classical philosophy. This is my like Derridian moment where the matter and the form or the content and the form, whichever way you want to say it, are generally matter is passive, form is is active, form is the one, form is spirit, forms the good part, matter is the stuff we can get rid of, or right. it's the arbitrary stuff. It's the form that matters. You can see this in Plato. I mean, Kant even uses this language in the, in the Critique of Judgment, I was reading it earlier, where he's thinking about our access through the moral law, through this higher form of the faculty of desire in the in the form of will, it's really also with our experience with the sublime that ruins our imagination, makes it recoil upon itself. And in doing so, we find the pleasure in knowing there is this idea of that which exceeds, goes beyond the sensible. There is this idea of the supersensible world that is equated with the moral world, right? And we are primed and predestined to be these moral subjects. And in that sense, it's in that sense that form just uh, becomes for Kant, the super sensible, the moral is the archetype. And we're down on the sensible realm of appearances and we're what he calls the ectypal, the ectype, which is the imprint, right? The, we are what's imprinted on by the archetype. And so we still have this hylomorphic schema that kind of does injustice, not only to matter, obviously, Kant is an idealist, even if a transcendental one, but in a certain way, also to form by overdetermining form as though it were the active and matter were, were mere passivity. I think this is why Simon Don is more interested in information rather than form as though it were separable from, from informing. Content? Uh, well, as though, as though content, quote unquote, or matter were not itself active. It did not already have active dispositions. Let me throw this at you. So what I was kind of thinking as you were in this form content sort of discussion, I was thinking about the commodity form, right? Because for capital, it's not really about the content or whatever, right? It's about the relational form, I suppose. The relation is the key, right? Because the commodity, like it doesn't matter what the fuck it is specifically in the specific identity or content. From the point of, of view of is, capital. Right? right. From the point of view of capital, yes. No, you're right. I mean it's exactly. almost like the commodity is almost like this transcendental illusion. Maybe that's the kind of fetish that's the fetish aspect yeah. of it that Marx goes into. Right. How a relation between producers, consumers, et cetera, becomes this phantasmatic relation between things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. And yeah, yeah, you're right. There is this, from the transcendental aspect of capital, you're right, the form, the commodity, its content doesn't matter. And yet, in the same realm, I think that's the paradox for Kant that he's trying to work out. Like, And this is a good way to bring in, since we just talked about desire, I'm going to leave Marx just for a later sure. episode, because I'm sure we'll come back to it. 
But, you know, since we were talking about the, the faculty of desire, what's interesting, the stuff I brought up with the super sensible world, you know, the stuff on the sublime, we could do a whole fucking episode on that. I, you know, I have a whole thing about the sublime that I think I would take 30 minutes to, to go into. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to not do that, but what's I interesting. Mean, honestly, I was less interested in that anyways. Oh yeah. That's just, that's just fascinating to me, but I want to keep it simple sure. or keep it short and, What's interesting to me about this question of the faculty of desire and the and the will, freedom and causality. This would be one of the things I think we can lead off from from desire, right? Because this question of the moral law, the categorical imperative, and this is why Kant is interested in the question of evil, because if there is freedom, one can always choose to make one's maxim coincide with a kind of lawful evil rather than like, a lawful good. Right, the Desaad thing. Um, well, exactly. I mean, that's a whole Lacan, the Khan of Exod, you know, is the executioner who takes pleasure out of, you know, the Saudian executioners supposedly would, would enjoy and take pleasure, get off on, come when he executes the victim. Mm-hmm. Or is, there, is the Kantian somehow more moral who is saying, just my duty, just following right. my yeah. duties. It's just the categorical imperative. I take no pleasure in this completely disinterested. Right? Now here's, where, here's where here's where like that follow from it. Here's where I like, I like Ned Stark's ethics of whoever passes the sentence should swing the sword. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And this is, this is actually Kantian to a certain extent, right? Because in the domain of practical reason as subjects of reason in the interests of reason, we are also legislators. I mean, now right. this is, this is, th- okay. that's, that's the categorical imperative again. That's the Ned Stark thing. That is a here, good point. Yeah. We're swinging the sword on ourselves, right? right. We're, we're kind of castrating ourselves there uh, with our moral imperative, but. Um, it is, I mean, it is kind of interesting just to interrogate the whole Kantian ethic in a certain way. There is this Kantian aspect categorical imperative to the execution of the breaking of the vows, the promise made to the night's watch, right? Regardless of the reason, regardless of the specific cause for that action and whether or not it's justified, doesn't matter. The sentence gets carried out regardless, right? Contradictory to that is this idea that if you can't bring yourself to execute the person, then perhaps it shouldn't occur. So that's yeah, kind of a yeah, weird yeah. like dichotomy or dialectic within this ethical weirdness. <laughs> yeah, imposing, code, imposing the sentence based on abstract principles is one thing, but carrying out the sentence and following the moral, the categorical imperative all the way through and actually, you know, performing the act. This is a good that, segue. That, into that shows this. you how hollow your principles are. Yeah, this is a good segue into this idea that the good is what the law says, right? Because... Uh, you know, in this case, right, obviously we know that the sort of truth of what the deserter brings, right? Like he br- he speaks the truth and he speaks a truth with utility for survival. And yet he is executed because of this draconian adherence to transcendent law of he left whatever. Like we have to hold this. Yeah, exactly. We have he to hold his, this law post. Yeah. regardless of the specifics, right? So, I mean, <clears> that goes back to our discussion last week about like how do you – how does one develop an institution of law that's going to recognize that every case is its own case by case basis, right? 
to some degree, this idea that the judge should carry out the sentence, that part of it is aligned there. But this other part is this Kantian categorical imperative that obligates the death, regardless of the, even regardless perhaps of the personal feelings of the one who passes and carries out the execution, which is also interesting, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a very interesting thing relative to Kant, I think. Obviously, Deleuze is trying to encapsulate what Kant is doing with this notion that the good follows from the law. And in that sense, obviously, he's not necessarily endorsing it, but it's, yeah. it's the fact that then the good doesn't pre-exist. Now, that <laughs> is interesting. That's if, That if, goes to eminence a little bit, right? If the good follows from the law and not the other way around, that we need to asymptotically try to approach the good as best we can with the law. I really do think that this, seeing this in Kant, that now the good follows from the from the law, instead of the other way around, that the law produces the good. I think that that's much closer to what Deleuze has in mind when he's writing in the time of empiricism and subjectivity 10 years before, when he's writing about Hume, he's yeah. writing about instincts and institutions, and he's mm-hmm. thinking about the fact that the law is this negative sort of limiting instance, whereas institutions are this positive, affirmative, sociable construction. That's where I would go with this, and that for Deleuze, he doesn't say that here, but if I'm wrong, if there's a third instance, if it's not that the law produces the good, but that it's institutions that produce the good, then I think that that's the corrective to Kant in a certain way. There aren't just laws and good. There's this third, secret third thing we call institutions. <laughs> the point I was going to make about the freedom and causality really quickly, as you brought up causality earlier, was the fact that if, if the sensible realm, so to speak, the realm of nature, phenomenal world, doesn't make room for freedom, right? We can think of it as a kind of determinism. This is why the thing in itself and the noumenon is so important for Kant and why we can't know it, but we have to think it. We have to think it. Why? Because we have to think of ourselves as free individuals, free subjects who break with causality, who without cause create effects which also are not themselves, do not themselves give rise to the free causes that we are. Existence precedes essence. Yeah, I mean, roughly, but this is where the supersensible, the thing in itself, the noumenon, all comes back into play a role in the moral realm. And without that, then we're stuck in the sensible realm. We're stuck in the realm of appearing that cannot emit a free cause. That's hmm. where cause becomes interesting. That's where cause and effect becomes interesting. Because now, for me, at least, with Kant, versus Hume, and I think Hume is, is in a different level, and so his his skepticism stays, but with Kant, look, we can know causes and effects from the sensible world, but to know free causes, to know the supersensible causes that we are as free agents and free subjects, that can't be known beforehand. And that's that's the will, that's free will. And that's how the supersensible calls for us to act within the sensible, or how nature in the sensible cannot there are ends of nature that it alone needs to go outside of the idea of nature as sensible realm to qualify and that's why 
that's humans, human history, humanity, transcending sort of the sensible realm and our actions as free will. And it's, it's because that causality, that free causality is, is so burdened with responsibility for all it can do from the end of the world to climate change to evil institutions. That's why I think Khan is fascinated with the problem of evil and why I think he wants to try to show the way in which the categorical imperative could be a way of eliminating these usages of free will. Now, obviously, it's easier said than done, but theoretically, it seems if we could practice the categorical imperative, there would be like this universal peace and all of these things. But I'm not so sure. Kant's, Kant's kind of yeah. Kant's, Kant's kind of weird. I mean, I'm skeptical of I'm skeptical of a universal law that would meet the criterion of the categorical imperative period. Well, I think that if you. But then again, I guess he is looking at it different because he would say you can't lie to protect someone because I would say that's a this is where that would fail for me, I suppose. You know, I think that there's a certain way in which. The practice of communism could very well be consistent with a kind of re-envisioned categorical imperative. It all depends upon the way in which we think it, because it doesn't necessarily have to be beholden to this transcendental system, you know, but I do think that there's a kernel of something, there's a kernel of truth there that seems to be able to accord with a, a future vision of, and doesn't necessarily have to be utopian, although one can easily imagine this, but this notion whereby the will, desire, sort of working through problems and making activity this universal whereby there can be this harmony established. Problem is it's not pre-given, obviously, right? And so acting in accordance with this maxim would be an ongoing, indefinite, collective, iterative, thing almost like a science because we have to iterate and we have to experiment and we have you know what i mean we have to fail a lot to it would have aspects of art science philosophy that's cool yeah and that that would be the the way in which politics would effectuate these things right Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah i guess that that would be the question for like 21st century categorical imperative like what how that can be re-envisioned and i'm not the first to suggest there could be a kind of Kantian Marxist, I don't want to say synthesis, but I think a a coalescence and navigation. And I guess that's where I would sort of end our talk where it's like, not everything in Kant's bad, even if the system doesn't work for us or needs to be overhauled or updated or reversed with Deleuze or reworked or these other critiques we've had of, of the work that we talked about with Dan and Gil. I do think that there's, there's a sense in which he's, obviously not an idiot he may be bringing answers or even framing problems in a way that still skew it towards the sort of nordic christian protestant sure path yeah. that he's on but but i but i don't think that the problems themselves being framed that way can't give us impetus to like go further because i still think he's he's circling around some some themes that's I think that's why he's thought of as inaugurating modern philosophy. Yeah. I think we, in our modern society, 
civilization kind of like discredit the capacity of of people even as near to us as Kant as having having the capability to think in these ways but I, you know i think kant obviously understands the world in a way that is better probably than the average person alive today right you know what i mean i mean hell even hume to some degree you got to think how you know divorced we are from them by hundreds of years yet they had great insights whether yeah. they're entirely correct obviously you know that's a different question but if you put them in their time relative to knowledge organization science like all these other faculties in the social not in in our in, internal sense but i think that's really impressive i agree i grabbed a couple of uh sterner quotes because i was like i don't like what deleuze is saying about the law here i mean this kind of goes to our little conversation a moment ago what else had his undertaking been in the end but that he wanted to suppress writings with brute force aren't you familiar with the same procedure as a legal and sanctioned one and what can you argue against it from your principle of morality? But it was an illegal execution. So the immoral aspect in this was the illegality, the disobedience to the law. So you admit that the good is nothing other than the law, morality, nothing other than loyalty. Your morality must also sink down to this outward appearance of loyalty, to this sacred work of fulfillment of the law, except that the latter is both more tyrannical and more revolting than the old time sacred work. Because this only required the act, but you required the attitude as well. One is supposed to carry the law, the statute within himself. Whoever is most legally minded is the most moral. Even the final serenity of Catholic life must perish in Protestant legality. Here, finally, the rule of law is complete for the first time. Not I live, but the law lives in me. So I have really come so far only to be the vessel of its, the law's glory. It's Every gen- Prussian yeah. carries his gendarme in his breast says a high Prussian officer. You know, the gendarme is the, it's just a high-ranking police officer. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. It's the cop in our head, right? That yeah. Cerner's talking about. But yeah, I mean, there, there's a certain aspect. Well, of I like that. So this line here, he says, so you admit that the good is nothing other than the law because that Deleuze specifically, the good right. is what the law says. So I was like, eh. Yeah, and, and his, um, Khan has a essay on, um, enlightenment right and it really does come down to argue debate whatever but when the sovereign calls obey right so you have this private use of reason where you can argue you can even like sort of argue against what the sovereign's calling for against the status quo etc but the public use of reason you know it's when the nation state when the when the state form the sovereign calls upon you to act and to obey. That's when you got to stop. You got to stop. Uh, stop arguing. The discord has to become the the accord, if you will. If you want to talk about the the accord of the faculties, that's mm-hmm. like enlightenment to doubt and to and to undermine and et cetera, et cetera. But and this is why the king of Prussia should allow books and blah blah blah. But at a certain point, that's just the better to obey. Any case, we got some of our content. We're going to get some more next week, so we can. The time temporality stuff is a lot of what I wanted to discuss, and we'll be tackling that next week. So, yeah, if you want to wrap up here, I'm, I think I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think that would be nice. Well, that's going to wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, Taylor Atkins. See you all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity including the ultimate form of security.
which is